are all assembled. Today we'll venture into the formal shamatha practice. And all of the methods that we'll explore, in fact, every method of shamatha, always entails a cultivation of balance. It is absolutely central to shamatha, central to many, many aspects of spiritual practice in general, but very much so to shamatha. And we're taking a very gradual approach here. And so as some of you already are anticipating from the podcasts or books and so forth, what we'll be focusing on this afternoon will be the first, the first balancing act, so to speak. And that is, it's going to be, the emphasis will be on pushing the envelope or exploring deeper, deeper level of relaxation, of letting go, of ease, but of relaxation in short. But we already know how to relax. We do it every time we fall asleep. The balancing act is to learn how to consciously, deliberately relax more and more deeply without falling into what we almost always fall into when we deeply relax, and that is a lack of clarity, dullness, sleepiness, and then simply falling asleep. So, the, so this is really good to memorize. This is the first major challenge. And if you can master this, if you can really master the art of deeper relaxation without losing the clarity with which you began the session, it's going to be a tremendous boon. And if you don't master that, you're bound to have problems from then on. It's just, that's just how it turns out. I can give you a sneak preview of coming attractions and things that are not so attractive. And so there is the balancing act. And for this, we'll be going to mindfulness of breathing, which the Buddha, above all, above all methods that he taught, and he taught a tremendous variety, he emphasized this practice as the most effective for calming this obsessively, compulsively discursive mind. And so just very, very effective. So we'll be doing this. But the tendency is, when we want to get the mind to quiet down, is to contract to clamp down, to exert some will, to, and then the brow becomes furrowed. Now I'm going to really concentrate. And here we're going to be doing just the opposite, getting the awareness out of the head, into the body, down to the ground, or the earth element. And as, the way we experience the earth element, I think as you know, is just by way of these sensations of firmness and solidity. So, or firmness, yeah, firmness and solidity. So where our, our bodies are in contact with the meditation cushion or chair right now, our feet on the floor, all of that firmness, that's the earth element. So to ground the awareness there, but then maintain throughout the course of the session a, a kind of diffuse but present awareness. So diffuse in the sense of not tightly focused or concentrated. There will, be, there will come a time for that, but not now. So diffuse, relaxed, soft, but not getting groggy, vague, spaced out. So that's the first challenge, and I think that's enough of a prelude uh, except for this one point, and that is for this initial phase of mindfulness of breathing, you'll get used to it. <laughs> uh, for this initial phase of mindfulness of breathing, I would really strongly encourage you, it doesn't have to be now, but today, tomorrow, during our day in, and so forth, to really develop this skill, uh, if you've not already mastered it, to be able to meditate in the supine position. Uh, it's very, very useful. Uh, it's been, how do you say, authorized by the Buddha and by other great pundits in, the, in various traditions. I was encouraged to practice it by my primary Dzogchen teacher, or Lama, the Venerable Gyatso uh, But So I'm just wanting to tell you, you know, there's no injunction against it. You're not, trying to, you're not flaking out in some new California hippie trip here. Uh, I won't try to defend myself. If you think I'm a California hippie, I'm okay, I plead guilty. But in fact, meditating in the supine position, 
uh, is not an indication of that. Um, but it is a posture. It is a posture when you're there emulating a corpse. And I'm sure that Kim can give you all the finer points of the shavasana, or the corpse position. It is a posture in which really you're invited to relax every single muscle in your body. Uh, I'm sure that corpses don't flex any of their muscles. They've you know, totally released. And so we're trying to emulate that, this total relaxation. Nothing held tightly. And then while in that deep sense, that utter release into ease, into relaxation, into looseness in the body, then we see if we can mentally reflect that quality of ease, of looseness, of relaxation, of comfort, and then with the catch, and that is without losing clarity. Okay? So in the process of this, one thing that is very disturbing to the mind, agitating, makes it restless, and just the opposite of relax and calm and so forth, of course, is the obsessive flow of conceptualization, the obsessive and compulsive flow. And I will unpack that right now, in case you are not already familiar. The obsessive, when I call it OCDD, or obsessive, compulsive, delusional disorder, the obsessive part is the fact that it, we just can't turn it off, that it keeps on blabbing even when there's nothing to say. You know? It's like, can you imagine having a radio with a big speakers in your house, and you can never turn it off? Oh, and by the way, it just goes from channel to channel to channel. And you can't turn it off. It's flooding every single room of your house. How much would you pay not to live in that house? How much would you pay not to live in your mind? You know? And by the way, that's just radio. This is also has a visual track. So it's having blaring televisions in every single room of the house, and they keep on going through all the infomercials and all of those wonderful channels that we get on t cable television. And you can't turn it off, and you can't turn it down and you can't close your eyes or block your ears. Welcome to your mind. And so that's the obsessive part. That's not an indication of a healthy mind, just by the way. And then the compulsive part is that it actually sucks us into it. We're watching the infomercial, and we actually get interested. Like, oh. oh. Wow. And we totally lose our minds into the multiple infomercials and soap operas and ridiculous B-dramas and war movies and porno films, if, that, if you're young. And, <laughs> you know, get caught in all of them one after another. They just suck us in. They just suck us in. That's the compulsive part. And then, to add its insult to injury, out of sheer habit, we often take our own thoughts, these ruminations, these obsessive, compulsive meanderings of the mind, as being the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it never is. Our thoughts sometimes do capture some facet of, of reality, and that's for sure. Thinking can be very useful. But delusionally, we may so identify with our thoughts and so, I, so cling to them as my thoughts, and I'm right because this is my opinion, my view, my way of thinking, that we assume that our perspective is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and that's just flat out delusional. So how to overcome what I would say is not merely a habit, more like an addiction. More like an addiction of not being able to turn it off with the obsessive, the compulsive getting caught up, the delusionally taking them all seriously, or at least too many of them seriously. Well, once again, mindfulness of breathing kind of nips it in the bud. Rather than going along for a ride and trying to get, you know, trim it later on after it's grown into a full, full tree, we just nip it in the bud and then as you're breathing out, you release and release and release. So you try to take all the steam out, all the energy out, 
that all the agitation, underlying turbulence, physiological, psychological, that's spewing out all this rumination, that's what psychologists call it, just release it. So it's as if our minds are an overinflated tire and just stick a pencil into the valve and just, pssst, you know, just let, out, let enough air out that you have more of an appropriate amount of pressure in the mind that we're not always just overinflated with thoughts that are spewing out. So I think that is the introduction. And the rest will be, let's just jump right into it, one gatika, and this will be on phase one of mindfulness of breathing. It is exactly what he was, uh, which Kim was talking about, a total fusion of meditation with shavasana. And if you don't have a place to go shavasana now, you can always do it later. Sitting is okay, of course. But it's bringing very, very much of a meditative quality to a yoga asana, and a very subtle one at that. So in we go. <coughs> Welcome to slip into a Pavlovian response as soon as possible, as soon as you hear the bell. Let your awareness descend right down to the ground. <clears throat> Slipping into this non-discursive, witnessing mode of awareness. Then, like a fragrance filling a room, let your awareness fill the whole somatic field of your body. And with this mindful presence, you may note areas that feel tight. In your torso, in your face, around the eyes. Every outbreath release. Strike that balance in your posture <clears throat> that is simultaneously deeply relaxed. And if you're sitting upright, sitting in a posture of attention, vigilance, but even in the supine position, you adopt a psychological stance or posture of alertness, of vigilance, and sustain that balance with stillness. <clears throat> 
same spirit of release, letting go, let your respiration settle in its natural rhythm. Without effortfully drawing the breath in or expelling it, let the respiration flow as effortlessly as possible. Relaxing in every way with each out-breath, releasing thoughts, releasing the breath all the way through the end until the next breath flows in effortlessly. <coughs> and set your mind at ease, <clears throat> releasing all concerns about the future and the past. <clears throat> and letting your awareness non-conceptually come to rest in stillness in the present moment. Let the natural clarity of your awareness illuminate the sensations related to the breath wherever they most distinctly manifest throughout the body.
we liken your attention to a wild horse, untamed. It is now time to gently tame, to subdue this horse by corralling it, so to speak, within the field of your body so that it's not roaming off to other sensory fields and not roaming off into thoughts about the past, the future, or even the present. Contain your awareness, your attention, within the field of the body. maintain a diffuse awareness that permeates the whole field, or you may allow your attention to rove within the body, attending to the sensations of the breath, wherever they are most evident. Very, cheap, very gently contain your awareness within this field without allowing it to be distracted or caught up and carried away by conceptual grasping. Various thoughts, mental images, memories are bound to come to mind out of sheer habit or addiction. But rather than trying to shut them out or constrict them, with every out-breath, happily, gently release them and return to the present moment, to this perceptual mode of awareness of attending to the bare sensations of the breath throughout the body.
there's subtlety to this practice, which seems on the surface so simple. And that is we are attending to or attempting to focus clearly, continuously on the sensations of the breath, maintaining an awareness of the flow of the respiration, which we can very easily influence, control, modify, regulate. Here we seek to maintain that flow of mindfulness of the breathing while releasing all control, all preference. There's a lot of subtlety here to attend very closely to something that we can easily modify and not do so. Just let it be. Let the breath flow.
your faculty of introspection as soon as you note that you have been caught up and carried away by distracting thoughts. Let your first response be to relax, loosen up. Release whatever captivated your attention. And then return to the object of meditation, the flow of sensations of the breath within the body. Relax, release, and return. this phase of mindfulness of breathing, it is as if we are allowing the body to fall asleep. And even the active discursive mind to fall asleep. But while maintaining the clarity, the luminosity of awareness itself, fall asleep consciously.
In terms of the development of shamatha, this can be understood in a very mundane way, in a way that is non-mystical, nothing opaque about it. It's really a matter of cause and effect. And the causes are quite clear, and then the effect is clear. So if you cultivate the causes, the effect will arise. One of my earliest teachers said, if you cultivate the causes, even if you don't want the effect, the effect will still happen. Right? It's true. And so there are various inner and outer prerequisites or causes that give rise to development along the stages of the path to shamatha, including the actual achievement of shamatha, very clearly laid out based upon, oh, it must be millions of hours of experience. I mean, 100 generations of Buddhist yogis by now, over 2,500 years, an enormous database of what is necessary for the outside and what is necessary for the inside. For these eight weeks, the outside is just dished up to us. So that's taken care of. Now, no more worries. But now, in terms of the inner qualities, because, because obviously nobody's going to achieve shamatha just by staying here. What are the inner qualities? Well, I'm not going to go through the whole list. I'm just going to go to the last one. Uh, and you can, you can check these out in the Attention Revolution. Or as I, as I recall from last year, we had all the notes that I use, the outlines that I use for a kind of a, uh, my one-week shamatha retreat that I have led so many times, list these in complete clarity. But the last, the final, are the inner necessary causes for developing shamatha is the complete abandonment or totally getting rid of obsessive, compulsive thinking. Just be free of it, right? No more. Not only during sessions, that's kind of a course, but in between sessions that we're totally releasing such Obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking at all times. That's a prerequisite, right? And so one finds in the classic Lam Rim literature that runs through all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and for example, the, the, the kind of the, the most formidable of them all, I believe, the great exposition of the stages of the path by Tsongkhapa, a monumental piece, that before he ventures into this whole sequence of various types of meditations along the path, developing renunciation, bodhicitta, the six perfections, shamatha, vipassana, before entering into any of that, he first suggests, okay, now how about your lifestyle? How about lifestyle? And the points that he highlights are that between sessions, as you're simply going about your life, that you're maintaining an ongoing flow of mindfulness, of engaged attentiveness to whatever is occurring in the present moment, so you're bringing awareness to the senses, and you're really kind of here and now. You're grounded, you're rooted in the senses, and you're monitoring the flow of the mind with introspection. So it's making a lifestyle of a flow of mindfulness and a flow of monitoring, like a good driver monitoring, looking at the dashboard to see your, you know, the RPMs, the, the heat, the how, whether your engine is overheating, how fast you're going, whether all the doors are locked, and so forth and so on. You're monitoring the mind as a good a professional driver will monitor how the engine is running, and you just make that a way of life. So on the surface, this might sound like it's anti-thought, anti-conceptualization. 
And that is absolutely not true. It's not the case that in Buddhist meditation that we're against thinking or against discursive mind or conceptualization. I mean, so many types of Buddhist meditation entail the very active, very conscious use of thinking, conceptualization, visualization, imagination. And we'll be doing this every morning when we're practicing or cultivating the four immeasurables. But thinking is a little bit like handling a, uh, a power saw, a power saw. And I think every carpenter knows that power saws are enormously useful for cutting all kinds of things, cutting metal, cutting wood, plastic, and so forth and so on. Very useful power saw. As long as you're running the power saw and the power saw isn't running you, right? As long as when you're handling it, that is, carpenters need a wide variety of tools, right? Power saw is one of the major ones, but oh, they need all other kinds of hammers and so forth and so on. So what the carpenter will do is pick it up intentionally, use it, and then when the work is done, set it aside and probably turn it off. But if the carpenter picked it up and then just got really absent-minded and with the power saw in hand, scratched his ear, and so forth, that could be a bit dangerous, right? And so thinking, conceptualization, is very much like a power saw. Power saw cuts, it divides, it separates. And that's precisely the function of conceptualization, the thinking, the, the conceptual mind. And that is, as we are just resting in a, in a non-conceptual mode, or at least an approximation of it, appearances are rising just all over the place. They're fluid. They don't have sharp boundaries. Sounds arising, visions arising, tactile sensations, this whole dance of fluid, effervescent, ever-changing array of emotions, and, or not emotions, but appearances, sensory appearances. So within the visual field, for example, this elliptical visual field, the appearances arise, but they're not, they're not sharply demarcated from each other, right? I mean, it's, just, it's, an, it's a flow. And then conceptualization gets in there. And it looks, for example, it blues it. Oh, yeah, that's the blue of a shawl. It looks like it's probably maybe silk and cotton. I'm, I'm sure its texture is quite soft. And so then, whoosh, now suddenly an appearance has become an attribute of an object that is conceptually designated. And I'm separating that from the person who's wearing it and his other garments. The shawl is not the same as its color. The color is not the same as the shawl. The shawl has a texture. The texture is separate from the color and so forth. So this is just the nature of the conceptual mind, that it gets in there and like a power saw, it cuts, it divides, and then it objectifies the world into objects that have attributes. And all of these, uh, these objects with their individual labels are now distinct. They are separate. And if we reify them, if we grasp onto their inherent existence, then they all appear to us and are grasped as inherently, independently existent. Like me and you. You're way over there. I'm over here. And there's only a little bit of water I'm getting it. So now we're bifurcating, we're cutting up reality, and we're generally doing that with a self-centered attitude, and all based upon it, the powerful reification of I am. I have attributes. I have my qualities. And they're separate from yours and separate from everybody else's. So on the one hand, conceptualization is very, very important. We need it for so many endeavors, including many types of meditation. Very useful, because the world, of course, is not one great, big, undifferentiated mush. You know, we couldn't function that way. The greatest, greatest yogis in the world don't function in that way. One of the five facets of primordial consciousness or, or primordial wisdoms is of discernment. Primordial consciousness of discernment. 
So if you're even perfectly enlightened, you're still not mushing everything in. It's like, it's all one. And you're kind of like, oh, okay. That's not enlightened. That's not, that's not awake. That's goofy, right? And so this ability to discern, to distinguish, you want to keep that all the way across like a better and better power saw, you know, that does distinguish. Can, and, and there are objects in the world, and they do have attributes on this relative level. But how often have we been harmed by our own conceptual minds? How often have our own conceptual minds then driven speech and physical behavior that's rent an awful lot of damage? So, in the one, so it's like a, like a sharp knife. You know, it can cut both ways. It can cut the wielder of the knife, and it cut, can cut what you would intentionally like to cut. A crucial caveat here, why Tsongkhapa and all of the great masters of all Buddhist traditions, really, I think without exception, warn us again, getting caught up mindlessly in using the power saw of conceptualization in just this mindless or quasi-conscious rumination. A crucial underlying theoretical point here that can be tested experientially, it's a very powerful one, is that all mental afflictions, all klesha, delusion, hatred, greed, and all the derivatives of these three fundamental toxins of the mind, all mental afflictions are hosted by conceptual mind. Conceptual mind. Right? Just like the bubonic plague was carried from, actually it came from China, thanks to Genghis Khan opening up the trade routes. Then those nasty little... Rats in China traveled all the way to Europe and wiped out one-third of the one-third, one-half of the European population, let alone an awful lot of people in between. But the rats were just the hosts. They were just the carriers. They were carrying fleas, and the fleas carried bubonic plague. Right? And that's what wiped out in, what, 14th century, I think, decimated European civilization and so much of Europe altogether. I'm giving as an analogy, as the flea is the host for the actual virus itself. I think it's a virus and the rats are the host for the fleas. So is the conceptual mind a host for all mental afflictions, which have done an awful lot more damage to humanity than the, than the bubonic plague. Right? So rats have their function. They eat garbage, they clean up the place, they're the dumpsters, the garbage collectors of, of the planet by now. So they are performing a function, something useful, but of course they can also carry disease. Fleas, I presume, must perform some valuable function in nature. I haven't figured it out what it is yet, but I'm sure it's there. I'm not a biologist. But they may also carry disease. And so likewise, and I'll sum up here, conceptual mind, of course, can be very, very useful. It can also be the carrier for cultivating loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, aroused, first of all, by the conceptual mind and then transcending the conceptual mind. For those of you who studied Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, but frankly, it's also there in, in classic Theravada Buddhism, Vipassana the sword that cuts through the root of all mental afflictions, and most specifically, delusion. The sword of the passion of wisdom, how do you first wield it? How do you, how do you use it? Conceptual mind. Right? You arouse your conceptual mind to investigate conceptually, probing in, using concepts, gaining insight, and then the insight itself melts away or burns away the conceptualization so you go from a conceptual insight into a non-conceptual insight. You use it, and then you outgrow it. You use the raft to cross the shore, and then you leave the raft behind. So likewise, when we're meditatively cultivating love and kindness, compassion, the four immeasurables, we're starting conceptually. That's the absolutely classic way to begin it. 
We get the engine ru we get the engine turning over. We warm up. We get it to start to emerge, to emerge, to emerge. But then, as we open it up, as we're tapping into what in Buddhism we call Buddha nature, as we tap into the inner resources of our own hearts and mind, then we see that oh, this loving kindness that's being experienced, it's not being fabricated by thinking. It's being opened up by thinking. But when you tap into the source, almost like digging, digging in dry soil, and it gets a little bit, a little bit moist, and you dig deeper and get a bit muddier, and you try to suck the mud and get some juice out of it, some fluid out of it out in the desert, and you dig deeper, and you keep on digging deeper. And then at one point, you see that, ah, this moisture isn't coming from the digging. It's coming from, of course you knew this, it's coming from a deeper place, and dig deep, deep enough, and then the water just starts to flow. And then you have an artesian well. So that's what the conceptual process is in the four measurables. We dig deeper, 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 and at the beginning, it's bound to be dry. And so many people engaging in these four measurables, they try it, and they say, it just doesn't work very well for me. I'm just not a very affectionate, warm-hearted, cuddly person, so loving kind of doesn't work. Or I'm just not a very compassionate person, that doesn't work. And, and then move on to something else, as if you didn't have a Buddha nature or something like that. Right? For most people, when we engage in these discursive, conceptual meditations, they're a bit dry. They're a bit dry. It seems more like an exercise, a visualization exercise, a conceptualization exercise. It's not like more, more working out in the gym. But often it doesn't yield the juice, that real turning of the heart, that opening of the heart. It doesn't, doesn't open up so swiftly for some people, for quite a few people. But with just gentle persistence, especially in the context of a broader meditative practice, including shamatha, then you start tapping deeper, deeper, deeper. And then with that conceptual mind, you open up these inner resources. And then the loving kindness, compassion starts to flow. And then you find it's becoming more and more spontaneous. And then less and less do you need to use the conceptual, the discursive meditations, because they've done their work. And when you tap into rikpa, I'll just jump right ahead to Dzogchen, when you tap into your own Buddha nature, pristine awareness, well, then you've tapped into the very wellspring of loving kindness and compassion, at which point you don't need to cultivate it. You just get out of the way. So, something like that. So what I would encourage you, now that we're just starting out, is to be quite relentless in breaking old habits. Here is eight weeks. I won't be able to say that today. I mean, that very long. It's a little bit one day less than eight weeks, right? So... In a few days, it can be seven weeks. In a few more, you'll bat your eyelashes a few weeks, and then six weeks, and then you'll cough a couple of times, <coughs> and that's five weeks. You know, it goes by really quickly. I guarantee it. I've done this before. But we have eight priceless weeks where, with, with very few exceptions, we have nothing to do besides practice dharma. Nothing to do besides overcome old habits and cultivate some really good ones. And so as relentlessly as possible, as continuously as possible, if you can release and release and release the old habit or addiction of the OCDD in between sessions, the whole practice will go much, much better. And it will be a smoother transition in, a, in meditation, out of meditation. And so even if you're only meditating, some people have come to these retreats only meditated three or four hours a day. They've got 24, and some people only meditate three or four. It can still, still be very meaningful, depending on what they're doing with the other 20 hours. Right? Some people have been meditating eight or 10 hours a day. 
But if with the other 10 hours or so, their minds are all over the place, then it's like, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, forward and back, forward and back, you know? And at the end, you wind up where you started, right? A lot of to and froing, right? Lama Yishi, who was a long time ago, he passed away quite a few years ago, he said, characterizing modern practice of Dharma, it says it's like jumping into the shower and cleaning all up, and as soon as you're out of the shower, jumping into a mud pool and just splashing yourself with mud. Oh, I'm so dirty, time to take a shower. And then showering up, and then, oh, time to go into the mud pool again. And so, bad boy, bad boy. So, to maintain that continuity is really the key. It can be gentle. And, but how to do it? How to do it? And there really is a method. There's a strategy here. It's not just an ideal try and then see how much you, you fail. But in the meditation itself, because that's where we're kind of, it's, we really are not, we're, we're seeking to do nothing other than practice Dharma. In between sessions, we have to eat, we have to brush our teeth, and not much else, but a little bit else. Right? But stretch a little bit and so forth. Um, but while you're meditating, then you have only that to do. And so if we are not to be caught up and carried away by the current of rumination, which is so habitual, I think you've already recognized, if we're to get out of that riptide of obsessive compulsive ideation, then we need to give the mind something else to do. It's like a person, if a person is a, an alcoholic, number one, you try to get them out of the bar. But number two, you try to give them something else to do that occupies the mind so they're not just sitting around with the bottles right over there saying, oh, what shall I do, what shall I do? You know? Give them something else to do. And so now, leaving the metaphors aside, there's something very practical here. And I'll focus right on the form of meditation itself, which seems, again, so simple. It's almost like kindergarten, right? It's really kindergarten, really basic. Didn't say, and I never say easy. I always say simple, and they're not the same. But it is simple. But, the, but the, what I'm getting at here in terms of strategy is give your mind something to do. Always keep it engaged. I'm not speaking of something rigid, but in the meditation, when you're in this phase one of mindfulness of breathing, give yourself a full-time job that for the full 24 minutes, I have something to do every single moment. And that is to stay home and be engaged, be attentive, be mindful of the sensations of the breath arising within the body. The mind abhors a vacuum. To paraphrase Aristotle, nature abhors a vacuum, while our minds abhor a vacuum. Right? They really do, don't they? If you're just sitting there and, say, and you just have nothing to do. You, know, you come to a stoplight. Really, you've got nothing to do. You've got nothing to do when you're just staring at the red light. What are you supposed to do? There's nothing to do. So what do you do? You fill the mind. The, the thoughts come rushing in. Oh. Even staring at, here in, in Thailand, you can say, 64, 63, 62, 61, 60. <laughs> we fill the mind with something, you know. And so, if we are not to be caught up in rumination, then we have to fill that vacuum with something else. So it's very much like having a, like, like a, a jar, like in a chemist, chemist shop, a jar. Fill it full of water, any fluid, but let's say water. Fill it right to the brim, and then seal it on the top 
but with a hole in it. But fill it. Make sure there's just no airspace in there at all, right? Imagine filling the jar right to the top with water, sealing it, but with a hole on top. And then with that, through that hole, you have a straw, a sealed straw, a suction, a suction tube, and suck all the water out. Right? Once you've done that, and you get all the water out, and it gets harder and harder, because nature does abhor a vacuum, so to speak. Then when you get all the water out, then you really have a vacuum inside. Right? That's one way to get a vacuum. Fill it with something, and then take out that which you've put in. And so what we're doing in this practice, that 24-minute session, is we're seeking to fill the space of your mind. Fill it continuously, right to the brim, with an ongoing flow of sensations of the breath. So that there's always something coming in. It's, there's, just, there's no space for anything else. That you're filling your awareness with these non-conceptual appearances, sensations of the breath. So there's just no room for thoughts. It's kind of like, like a public toilet. Occupied. There's only room for one person in here, and it's already full. Nobody else. Come in. Right? I love that. I love that metaphor. <laughs> and so fill your mind. No vacancy. Occupied. I'm doing something. I'm already busy. You know, I'm fully employed attending to this. And so you basically squeeze out, just because there's no space in that volume, that space of your mind, for the thoughts to encroach, because you're filling it with something else. And then you get off the cushion. You get off the cushion. You're walking out the door, going back to your room, maybe going for a walk, doing whatever you wish to do. Then the, the wisdom of the ages, and I'm thinking of centuries here, this is an old science, is whatever your meditative object in shamatha, classic, classic teachings, whatever your meditative object, whether it's a visualized Buddha, whether it's your breath or the other topics that we'll be investigating, but for right now, they should focus on the breath. In between sessions, maintain, as continuously as you can, a peripheral awareness. A peripheral awareness. Okay? Like two friends uh, just holding hands. In, in many cultures, men hold hands. It's cool. It's not indicative of anything, but just friendship. So just you know, two men just walking down the street, or a man and woman, a couple, whatever, but just lightly holding hands. So you're... You may be talking, you may be engaging with other things, attending, talking to other people, and so forth, but you're just maintaining that touch. You're in touch, right? In touch. Even though 95% of your attention may be elsewhere, but you're in touch, just gently holding hands. So in between sessions, gently hold hands with the flow of your breath, knowing when it's flowing in, knowing when it's flowing out. As you're brushing your teeth, you're putting your dishes back after you've eaten your meal, going for a walk, whatever you may be doing, but if you can maintain that just peripheral awareness of the inflow, outflow of the breath, that also will fill a space that would otherwise be occupied by blah, 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 blah. Rumination. It's bound to encroach. Your mind abhors, abhors a vacuum. And so if you're not fully engaged with whatever is happening right now, then the rumination will come in and fill the vacuum of your mind and disturb it, agitate it, and come to all, all the rubbish that rumination brings with it. So if you can be very engaged as you're walking. And this is, this is one of the real advantages of this modern Vipassana movement. Mindful walking, mindful eating, mindful brushing teeth, mindful going to the bathroom and so forth, but really trying to make a way of life of being here now, mindfully engaged with the senses, with the visual, the auditory, the tactile, walking, feeling the sensations of your feet on the ground, 
And so call it Vipassana, call it just being mindful. I don't care. It's semantics. But it's very good advice. It's very good advice. And many, oh, it has to be tens of thousands of people now, have found this kind of sustained flow of mindfulness in between sessions, let alone during sessions, to be very useful. And now we have scores of scientific studies. Number one, showing that mind-wandering and rumination is really bad for you. Multitasking is really bad for you and inefficient. And thirdly, overcoming the rumination and being mindful is very healthy for you, physiologically and psychologically. So we have so little, so few demands on our time here that as much as right now you can already be venturing into kind of a full all-day practice, whether you're meditating formally four hours a day or 12 hours a day or something in between, that you do have that sense that your Dharma practice, what you came all the way here, most of us from long distances, you came all the way here to practice Dharma, that you really let it be as beneficial as it possibly can. Not just for four hours, six hours. Even if you're meditating eight hours, that means 16 hours is left over. So that's only one-third of your time here, right? Even eight hours, that's pretty robust. But not having that, not worrying about whether you're practicing six, seven, eight hours, that's, let that flow. But more that sense of just letting your whole presence here, your whole presence here in the mind center, I love the name, is that it's mindful, that it's engaged, it's attentive, and breaking old habits, breaking old habits. Which means, of course, that when you want to think, just like the carpenter picking up the power saw, oh, just what I needed, there's the power saw, exactly what I needed, good, good, get to work and use it. And then when you finish, put it back again and turn it off rather than the power saw just running around like a little energizer bunny just chewing up your room and chewing up you. Yeah, a bit creepy. Right? Own a power saw, don't let the power saw own you. Tsongkhapa, coming back to this great 14th century master, he said, once you've achieved shamatha, now you have a mind. He put it really bluntly. Now you have a mind. Until then, mind has you. It's dragging you. You're not dragging it. Your mind is a 150-pound Great Dane, and you're the five-year-old little child holding the leash. Who's taking who for a walk? Right? So getting a mind, acquiring a mind. It might be useful having a mind. You never can tell until you get one. Oh, lasso. I finished. It's already 5.30. I wanted to blab a little while, try to set a stage for full practice, but with a strong emphasis on relaxation, the balance of relaxation without losing clarity. Great way, best way to fall asleep in the supine position, shavasana, really great. Uh, but we do have a half an hour, and we can break right now if there are no questions or comments, insights. But if now is the time, anything coming up so far from the practice or anything going on here? Yes, we'll start there. And please say, everybody say your name first, so not only I hear, but everybody hears. Thanks, Udo. Um, I can keep my attention on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils, right. but there's the oscillation. Sometimes I'm like right on my nose, yeah. and other times I'm way, 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 and looking through a heap of fog of thought and yeah. everything else. Yeah. How to stop that oscillation so that I actually just stay on the nose and I'm not over right. on that? It's a very good question, and I'd like to hold off on it for a while. And that is the, what you're referring to is what I call the third phase. It's classic Theravada approach. 
to mindfulness of breathing, and it's spectacular. That's why even though most of my training, I don't know, 80% of my training is in Tibetan Buddhism, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and only 20% in Theravada, nevertheless, when I'm teaching mindfulness of breathing, I'm just going straight Theravada route, because that's their baby. That's what they've been emphasizing for you know, more than two, two millennia. And so I'm very, very keen on that, and the classic, the classic Theravada approach is exactly as you described, attending to the tactile sensations at the apertures of the nostrils. That said, bear in mind that for most of the history of Buddhism, the people practicing this are living in like a mile from here, in you know, really laid back, rural setting, slow pace of life, you know, uh, and they're monks, many of them are monks, not all, and so they're bringing an equality of calm, and I'm not saying they're better or that they have less mental afflictions, but just overall, in rural societies, agricultural societies, nomadic societies like the uplands of Tibet, the pace of life is almost unimaginably slower, more laid back. No television, no, no, none of this, none of that, you know. Uh, and when the, when the sun goes down, it's dark. That's the history of most of humanity. That's the history of most of Buddhism. The sun goes dark, it's, when the sun goes down, it's dark. And so it's time to go to sleep or rest or whatever. And so what I'm, what I'm getting at here is let's take this really slowly because for us with a nervous system, you and I, nervous systems conditioned by modernity, you probably learn how to drive a car when you're in your teens, as I did. Well, Buddhists weren't doing that for the first 2,500 years, driving at 60 miles an hour or what have you. And so our nervous systems are conditioned away in, a, in a way that is an utter anomaly compared to the, almost the entire history of Buddhism. We're wired. We're wired. And it crops up many, 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 many times. Younger Tibetans are getting wired now like we are as well and having the same problems. And so what I'm getting at here is that what I'd like to do is address that question, but not today. I'd like to go back to, rather than focusing here, which is very tin point, it's single pointed, it's highly focused. This is a great place, focusing at the apertures of the nostrils, is a great place to synergistically cultivate relaxation, stability, and vividness. It's right on the money, so to speak. As, as you well know, the sensations get subtler and subtler and subtler. That invites us or challenges us to develop greater and greater acuity, vividness, sharpness of attention. It's great. Shamatha requires that. But it's very easy to gravitate to that first. And then what I've encountered, because I've been teaching now more than 35 years, and teaching mindfulness of breathing more than 30, 35 years. I taught it right from the beginning. I loved it. Uh, is what, I found, what I've encountered countless times over that period, people focusing here and then starting to get tight. And as we get tight, that can actually rattle the mind, create more agitation, and then it spews out, and then the natural tendency is to try a bit harder. Oh, my mind's, getting, my mind's starting to get agitated. My mind's wandering. I know. I'll be the strict dad. I'll be the strict dad. You kids don't shut up. You will be sorry. You know? And doing that to our own minds. Sternness, firmness, a firm hand, and you know, spare the rod and spoil the child kind of approach. It doesn't work on the mind. It, which is to say, it works for a short time, and then it falls apart. And I can't count the number of times that I've seen people experience this. And of course, I was the first one to notice I was doing it, is bearing down and then being, then being troubled that the mind kept on getting agitated, and then trying to fix it and focus more sharply again. And where's the remedy? Where's the remedy? 
I can do it. I'm tough. I'm strong. I'm young. I used to be. And you know, then applying and bearing down. And then it works. And then it doesn't work. You know? And so what's missing in all that whole scenario is the theme for today. And that is, we first of all, got to loosen up. We have to see if we can recondition our minds, our nervous system, the prana system, so that we're more like Thai monks living a thousand years ago, more like Tibetan nomads living a hundred years ago, and so forth. The pace of life, everything was so much more grounded, less conceptual, uh, more at ease, slower. Uh, if we, and so that's basically, this is remedial work. This is remedial work. To get our minds our bodies and minds more to be approximating those whom the Buddha was teaching and the many, many generations of yogis who have successfully practiced shamatha for a very finite period of time and achieved it. And then they move on to something else rather than just practicing shamatha, practicing shamatha, and then just up and down, up and down, up and down. That's because we're bringing something to the practice that they weren't bringing. And that's a 21st century body, 21st century nervous system. So I invite you to come back to the question when we're there in a couple of days, probably Tuesday, something like Tuesday. We'll address it then. But first, back off of the nose, back off of the tight focus. And this is, it has so many layers, this practice. Because we're going right to the root of the pursuit of hedonic pleasure versus the cultivation of genuine happiness or eudaimonia, human flourishing. And that is our pursuit of hedonic pleasure, happiness, is always stimulus-driven. That's just kind of by its definition. We're looking for something that will arouse a sense of interest, pleasure, satisfaction, joy, happiness. We're looking to some, for something to titillate the mind, to activate, to excite the mind. And of course, modernity is great at that. I mean, modern technology, entertainment industry, and so forth. And of course, just work itself can keep us very, very occupied, arousing, arousing, arousing. And we may find our work satisfying, in which case we may, may, we, we may turn into workaholics. I love my work, 16 hours a day. Who has time for anything else? I find it really engaging, bracing, invigorating, exciting. That's fine. It's also exhausting. And you'll never achieve shamatha that way. Right? And so what we're doing in this simple practice is essentially we're turning off the valve, like, like two faucets. We're turning off the valve of our whole pursuit of hedonic stimulation, something to arouse, to interest, to activate, to stimulate the mind, to give us something interesting. We're focusing on something that's frankly not very interesting at all. But in so doing, and being willing to choose peace over stimulation, serenity, calm, relaxation over stimulation, as a deliberate choice, and knowing that for a while, hopefully it can be a very short while, it's going to be boring but it's boring only because of lack of clarity. No activity, even a moving a finger like that, just straightening the finger, curving the finger, straightening, curving. Even that's not boring. I mean, that's a, if that's not boring, what is, right? But even that's not boring if you bring sufficient clarity to it. Years ago, I was leading a retreat up in northern England, one week Vipassana retreat. And I had people for, I think it was an hour, Straighten the finger and curve the finger. And I said, now, when it's still, note stillness. And now note how intention activates and moves the finger. And now what's the nature of movement? 
And then there's stillness. And now movement. And then stillness. And they're doing this with bare attention. They're doing it with a lot of vividness. Nobody complained of boredom. It was like, oh, I'm going too fast. I have to slow down. (laughs) And so boredom is not correlated to the object coming in. It's correlated to the clarity we bring to whatever we're attending to. So we can actually move quite quickly through boredom and then find that through this simple practice, and I emphasize it, the simple initial entry-level mindfulness of breathing that we've done this afternoon, that it's not stimulating, it's not objectively interesting, but we might start to appreciate and to even savor the fact that it is peaceful. It's loose, it's relaxed, it's calm. And we may find, you know, all in all, I prefer that to the agitation of a stimulus-driven mind. And I want to spend, I want to, not that I should, but I want to spend more time in meditation because it's more satisfying than always just going back into the rut of stimulation, stimulation, stimulation. So I'll use an old 1960s cliche, give peace a chance. Peace instead of stimulation. Because in that peace, in that peace, we've gradually, just little by little, we're opening up another valve. Now that we've turned off the valve of hedonic stimulation, we're gradually opening up the valve to a sense of well-being, beginning with peace, serenity, a sense of ease, of calm, looseness. Out of that, a greater sense of serenity, a sweetness of the serenity, a sense of well-being, and then bliss. But it's not stimulus-driven coming right out of the nature of your awareness. But, so we're slowly opening that tap, but we can't, we can't get that one to open if the other one's full throttle open. Right? We have to turn off one for the other one to start flowing. So this practice, so simple, has multiple dimensions to it with a lot of nuance. And that said, we'll come back to your question on Tuesday. Okay? Good. Anything else coming up? Um, Your name first? Uh, my name is Maria. I come from Brazil. Oh. And um, I, w- I brought a question with me, actually. This question came all the way. I'm not sure if it's not uh, the right time to answer. That's okay. Now's a good time, sure. Uh, when I was filling the form, and there was a question, would you like to achieve shamatha? Mm-hmm. And, of course, I said yes. Who doesn't want to achieve shamatha? But at the same time, I felt like, oh, how do I, because I have been trying to practice, the, you say, the three doors of liberation, which one of them is aimlessness. Uh, it's it's translate, translated into English as aimlessness. Uh, it's apranihita. I know it, yes. in Sanskrit, in something like this. And I thought, how would I conciliate apranihita with um, the intention of achieving shamatha and being very, ah, I want to achieve shamatha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. Yeah, three doors of liberation. Three doors of liberation. And this is the, the door of desirelessness, is a fairly standard translation in English. Desirelessness. And there's the door of emptiness. But we'll just focus on the, the door of desirelessness. It's a very subtle question, a very important question you raise. Actually, extremely important. And I've grappled with it myself through my own 
years of practice and receiving wonderful guidance from various teachers. First of all, the, um, the Tibetan term for practicing shamatha, we, that is, you use the word accomplish shamatha, perfectly good, or achieving shamatha. Of course, of course, there's a lot of talk about achieving shamatha, and that was, that's what happens after nine stages of development. Then, voila, achieving shamatha. But the Tibetan term, when you are along the path, you're in the process, have not yet achieved it, they would say, for example, if, it, if, if I were Tibetan and I were asked, well, what were you doing during those, first, those 24 minutes? I'd say, I'm not shinidukyu. I'm accomplishing shamatha. That's how they say I'm practicing shamatha. I'm accomplishing. It's, a, it's, a, it's something in process. I'm accomplishing shamatha. So they don't say practice, practice, and then one day the fruit will come. But rather, practicing itself is, is the very process of accomplishing shamatha. So it's not waiting for or hoping for some months or years, and then one day, like winning a lottery, then you get it. But rather, it's an ongoing process of accomplishing it all the way through. There are multiple levels, multiple levels of interpretation of these three doors of liberation. The one I've been most recently familiar with is in Dzogchen, where the door of desirelessness is not desiring anything you don't already have. But that raises the question, what do you already have? <clears throat> and are you aware of what you already have? Many years ago, many years ago, when I was translating for my teacher, the Venerable Gyatru Rinpoche, from whom I've learned almost everything I know and all the training I've had in Dzogchen is from him. Uh, I was translating for him as he was teaching, and he said, oh, he pointed to me, his interpreter, and he said, Alice, travel all over the world looking for shamatha. But he already has it. I know with certainty he was not praising me as being somebody very special. He was simply pointing out what was true for everybody in the room. The shamatha is something to be discovered, something to be unveiled. But that's if shamatha is really characterized by two qualities, stability and vividness. Above all, that's it. Stability and vividness. If either one is missing, you don't have shamatha. Awareness, by its very nature, is still. It's set in motion only by the power of grasping. Awareness, by nature, is luminous and clear. It becomes dull only because it gets obscured. So release the grasping onto agitation. Release the grasping onto dullness. And Shalmati was what's left over. And so he gave me a lot of counsel. I'll just pass on the, the, the essence of it right now to your very good question. And that is in between sessions, just generally in our lives. We can be and we are drawn to many, many things. Many kinds of desires arise. Many things seem attractive, worth pursuing, either for, for alleviating our suffering or finding happiness, sustaining the happiness that we have, finding new types of happiness and so forth. The world is filled with allures, you know, things that will draw us, that will arouse a wide variety of desires. And it's very easy to just go from one to another to another to another, and then you're dead. You know, very easy. 
just, what happened to your life? Oh, I tried a bit of this, and I tried a bit of that, and then I was dead. You know? And so, if anyone is to achieve shamatha, this means that there has to be a pretty strong desire. That's going to be overwhelming all the other things that one might be doing other than shamatha. Because there's so many attractions. And so many of them yield quicker benefits, quicker desirable effects than shamatha. If you want stimulation, they have ice cream. It's real quick. It touches the tongue, and it already feels good. Right? So you don't have to wait. You don't have to cultivate the pleasure of ice cream. Just knock it in your mouth, and it immediately tastes good if you like ice cream. And so in between sessions, to reflect in a spirit of loving kindness, wherein lies your happiness? What will really provide you with fulfillment? The satisfaction, the sense of meaning, the joy, the happiness that you seek. What really has some promise? You know, Bring all of your wisdom to it, your discerning intelligence. And you, you may, at young age or old age, recognize, well, through my own experience and then observing other people's experience, I now see a whole bunch of things that don't work. It just, it's, the evidence is in. It's, the case is closed. That doesn't do it. Right? And then you see what's left over. And I came to the conclusion when I was 20, the only thing that was left over was dharma. And I knew almost nothing about dharma. I just knew that everything apart from it didn't have a chance. It was no longer of interest, no longer worthy of investing any real time. Because there was zero chance. So if anything had any chance, it was dharma. And I didn't know whether it had any chance or not, but I figured better that that has a chance than everything else for which is no chance. And then within dharma, if we're really intent on marga, and since I think you know some Sanskrit, then you know the, the massive import of this term marga, a path. The possibility of engaging in spiritual practice that's not just doing a bit of this, a bit of that, and a bit of that, all virtue, all good, and then being dead, but rather engaging in practices that have a certain sequence of coherence and organic development to them so they bring about transformations in you that are irreversible. And that's what path is all about, right? So then we can ask the question, if we're not only intent on practicing dharma, but of actually finding a path to liberation, a path to awakening that is irreversible and doesn't just drop us off like a taxi that goes around the block and drops us off where we came back, you know, where we started. If we're really intent on path, then we can ask a very simple question. How likely do we, each of us feel, how likely do you think it would be to achieve path, a path of irreversible transformation, real growth, true evolution towards liberation and awakening? How likely is that to occur with a mind that's still prone to excitation and laxity? Still flip-flop, 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 but take your flip-flop mind like a fish on the sand, flip-flop, flip-flop between attention hyperactivity and have attention deficit, and we're going to use that mind to achieve irreversible transformation. If, I'm, if I were a bookie, I'd say, okay, give me your odds. I'd give me your odds. What do you think the chances are? You know? And to my mind, it's just it's crystal clear. No hope. One more thing has no hope. No hope. You can practice dharma, very good dharma, a lot of good dharma. Path without shamatha? Forget about it. No hope. Zero hope. 
So that starts to narrow down things a little bit. Not that one becomes myopically fixated on shamatha, excluding the four measurables in bodhicitta, the cultivation of wisdom, generosity, ethics, patience, and so forth. No, one's approach to Dharma should be rich, multifaceted, and very balanced. But it really does highlight, if you're interested in marga, some real transformation, a path, then shamatha is indispensable. And that's what multiple schools have been saying for 2,500 years, starting with the Buddha himself. He wasn't a school. He was one who actually achieved awakening. And so in this way, great desire can arise. And it's taught and encouraged by the Buddha. Let your desire for liberation be like the desire of a person whose hair is on fire. That's a lot of desire. You want only one thing first, and that is get the hair out the fire out of your hair, and then everything else comes afterward. But it's quite single-pointedly focused on no fire, please, right? And so in a similar way, there can be this very powerful concentration of desire on finding the path, progressing along the path, which means other desires just kind of fall back, like can't stand the heat. And so you're left with one desire. This is it. It's called renunciation. A spirit, or etymologically, Nen Jung in Tibetan is a spirit of definite emergence. You become thoroughly disillusioned, given up, that samsara will ever deliver the goods, that the hedonic treadmill will ever provide satisfaction. You've given up. No hope. And you've placed all of your hope, your aspirations, here single-pointedly. And so there you are. Now you've simplified your life. right? And then you get on the cushion. And then you receive instructions. Okay, we're going to go into the shallow end of the pool. Full body awareness. Relax. Relax more deeply. More deeply. As soon as you're doing the practice, release all desire. In that moment, in that moment of the 24 minutes, the six hours a day, the eight hours a day, when you're actually doing the practice. Release all desire. Release all hope. Release all notion of, might I achieve that? Might I not achieve that? All hope and fear. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Right? As soon as you're in, release all desire. And you are single-pointedly just doing the practice. With nothing else on the mind. How can you get there? What's the entry to that point of desirelessness? Is having only one desire and then releasing it and then just doing the practice. So what we'll find over these eight weeks is microcosm, macrocosm. As with the small, so with the large. One of the greatest 20th century Dzogchen masters was Dingo Kinsinabuchi. And he wrote a marvelous book called Enlightened Courage on the seven-point mind training. And in that text, he refers to those people who followed the Bodhisattva path, and they're coming to the very culmination, the end point, the final moments of being a Bodhisattva prior to becoming fully awakened, to becoming Buddha. And whether it's following the Sutrayana or Vajrayana, Dzogchen, what have you, you come to that point, you're almost, almost have achieved samyap sambodhi, perfect awakening. He said, when you're right there on the cusp, right there on the cusp, your last moments of samsara, of being a samsaric being, 
that point, he said, you have no preference, no preference for liberation over samsara, for nirvana over samsara, no preference. Completely desireless. Because you see, with 2020 vision, the one taste of equal purity of samsara and nirvana. And you have no preference. And then you fully awake. So we start way back here at shamatha, little shamatha of mindfulness of the body and the sensations of the breath and the body. Very simple, rudimentary practice. But it echoes throughout the path, all the way up to the final stage before it became Buddha. But how do you get that close to Buddhahood? Lots of desire. Desire that overwhelms all other desires that could derail you, distract you, and then just put you into the spin cycle of samsara indefinitely. It's a very interesting dance of desire and no desire. But as the conceptual mind in meditative practice leads beyond the conceptual mind, so does the cultivation of desire in spiritual practice lead beyond desire. And yet even that, not quite right, not quite, that's not the whole truth. Even that's not the whole truth. Because then we, we come back to, I'll even mention it here on the first full day of the retreat. The prayer most, I think, most commonly quoted by His Holiness Dalai Lama, cited from Shantideva, the guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. The Bodhisattva's aspiration for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so long may I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. That's a desire. And that one carries on until all sentient beings are liberated. That desire is called bodhicitta. But even then, even then, it's said that all the activities of a Buddha are unpremeditated. Unpremeditated. There's just a spontaneous outflow from the Buddha's own pristine awareness. Spontaneous bullshit as effortless as the moon casting a reflection in a pool of water. And whether it's a thousand reflections or it's one reflection, no more effort, no less effort on the part of the moon. It just spontaneously arises. So subtle, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So that brings us to 6 o'clock. That's a nice start. I'm very happy with this afternoon. Happy to be with you. Happy to have nothing to do for eight weeks besides practice dharma. So good. Let's have dinner together.